Can you hear me? There we go. Well, if you've got a Bible, you can turn it to Matthew 2. We're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 2 and some time in 1 John chapter 4. I have to warn you, I did not wear a watch this morning. Um, that I refuse to see. No, we've got a lot to cover, so you've got to listen fast. But I think God does have a word for us. Last week, Dale had mentioned that we we're going to look at some prophecies of Christ. He said that again this morning. And uh, he did mention there are several hundred. So buckle in. No, I'm kidding. We're, uh, we're just going to stay in Matthew 2. So there's four prophecies in Matthew 2 uh, that deal with the birth of, birth of Christ. And it kind of attach itself uh, back in the Old Testament. So, so Matthew kind of presents these prophecies as fulfilled in the birth of Christ. And last week we bounced back and forth between Matthew 2 and Luke 2. We were looking at the birth narrative. Matthew, it's interesting, I'd never thought about this before until I went to school, and Matthew kind of presents Jesus' birth from the perspective of Joseph. And Luke chapter 2 kind of presents it from the perspective of Mary. And it's just interesting to me that in Matthew 2... You see a lot of turmoil, you see a lot of moving, you see a lot of, I don't want to say negative, but perceived difficulties and negative things. And in Luke 2, you see a lot of, this is awesome and this is cute and cuddly and great. And so you've got the female perspective and the male perspective. He's like, here we go, we're going here, we're going there. What is going on? And then, you know, Mary's just tickled to death with her baby in, in Luke chapter 2. But it's both true stories. You'll, you'll hear kids when you go to college I thank the Lord that I didn't deal with this when I was in college. I guess I'm that old. But even if you just look at secular media, you'll hear people try to portray these as two different stories or conflicting, and they're not. It's the same story. It's just presented from different perspectives, from, from Joseph's perspective and Mary's perspective. But the two people were two real people that were in the same place at the same time, experiencing the same thing. That was free and not in my notes. But... So we're going to look at these four prophecies, specifically in Matthew 2. There's a prophecy concerning Bethlehem, a prophecy concerning Egypt, a prophecy concerning King Herod, and a prophecy concerning Nazareth. And so as we look at these four prophecies, the main idea that I want you to keep tucked in the back of your head is this idea of chance, random chance, versus the sovereignty of God. Because Matthew's going to show us how God is sovereign and works through everything. And what I also want you to keep in mind, and, and what we're going to try to tackle today through these four prophecies, is answer two questions. The, the first one is, what do these four prophecies tell us about God? What do they teach us about God? And the second thing is, what impact should these four fulfilled prophecies have on your own lives? We don't just look at these and say, this is nice. What does, that, what does it mean for you? How is it supposed to impact you this next week when you leave? So we're going to answer those two questions. What do we learn about God, and what is it, how is it supposed to impact my life? What Matthew's telling me in Matthew chapter 2, what does it mean for me? So let's look at these four prophecies real quick. We're going to walk through the whole chapter. But the first one is this prophecy about Bethlehem. From Bethlehem shall come a ruler. And that's Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the king was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So at the beginning of Matthew 2, what he's telling us here is that Jesus has been born. And Herod's informed of this by the wise men that came from the east. And they come asking, who is this king? Who is this king of the Jews? And this troubled Herod, and you can understand how it troubled him, based on his lineage that Dale talked about last week and how he would have despised the Jews and felt threatened by the possibility of this new king. So what he does is he gathers himself in this room with his smartest people. As I was reading this, I literally just thought of, this is kind of like the West Wing of the White House where I've got to make a crucial decision, get my team in here now. And I've got this general saying this and that general saying that. What are we supposed to do? King Herod gathers all of the wisest men, the smartest people that he knows, and he asks them, where is this Christ, where is this Messiah, where is this king supposed to be born? And this, t- this tells us on some level that Herod at least knew a little bit about Ju- Judaism and their expectations of the Messiah. And this also would explain his apprehension. He's probably thinking in the back of his mind, are you serious? Like right now, while I'm the king, this is going to happen. So where is it going to happen? Where is he supposed to be born? And the wise man answers his question, and they say, Bethlehem, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet. And the prophecy that they're, they're looking back to is found in the book of, of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you're by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem is noted by Micah for its insignificance. To the, to the tribe of Judah, it wasn't even on the map. So, so you pull out your Google Maps and you stretch it out and you're looking at the state of Tennessee. Red Boiling Springs is not on the map. It's not on the map. But it's still there, right? Bethlehem's there, but it's insignificant. It's not even on the map. If you go back to the book of Joshua... It's interesting that you find a record of all the land that's given to Israel as they come into the promised land, right? All the tribes get different pieces of land. And in Joshua chapter 15, we're presented with the land and the cities that were given to the tribe of Judah. And it's a substantial list. It it rattles off city after city after city. But interestingly, Bethlehem, though it's given to Judah, it's not on the list. It's not considered significant enough to even write down. Another interesting fact is that Bethlehem is the city where King David comes from. That's where David come from. And part of Matthew's purpose for mentioning 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2, for mentioning this prophecy is to draw a parallel between King David and King Jesus. David was considered insignificant. When Samuel goes down to Jesse's land, because that's where, David, where God told him to go, David wasn't even on Samuel's radar. But that's the one that God chose to be the king. So the prophet Micah points out that Bethlehem was insignificant to the masses. But it was from this insignificant town that God would provide the mighty ruler of Israel, the Messiah. And just as the youthful David had been insignificant, he was an insignificant shepherd in a small, insignificant village, and God takes him and exalts him to be king of Israel, so from this insignificant village of Bethlehem will the Messiah be born and crowned with glory. That's what Matthew's pointing us back to. The average person wouldn't look for the Messiah to come from Bethlehem. Modern scholars, if uh, I'm a stats guy, I'm a numbers guy, and they, they, I don't know how they come up with the math based on how many people were alive on the planet at the time, based on the population of Bethlehem at the time, they, they came up with a number that the random chance of a baby boy being born in the world at that time in Bethlehem was around 1 in 300,000. Those are difficult odds. I mean, if I told you, hey, we're doing a fundraiser and uh, you got one in 300,000 chance of winning if you buy this ticket from me, you're probably not buying a ticket. Difficult odds. But this is exactly what happened and is recorded in the scriptures. That's exactly where the Messiah was born, in Bethlehem. So Matthew goes on, and the second prophecy that he points us to is this, out of Egypt I called my son. And we find that in Matthew 2, Verses 13 through 15. And it says, Now when they had departed, these are the wise men, when they left, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. So after, after King Herod gathers all this information from the wise men, Herod sends him to Bethlehem to find the kid. Go find the kid. I want you to look diligently for him until you find him, and then I want you to come back, and I want you to tell me where you find him so that I can come and worship him as well. That's the story they were told. So the wise men, they follow the orders, and they go and find the child. Matthew tells us they were filled with great joy. They fell down. They worshiped the child as soon as they got there. They give him their gifts, and they head back. But before they leave, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And instead, they returned to their country in their own way. So what's going on here? Well, Herod's desire to worship this Jesus wasn't genuine at all. He wanted to know Jesus' location so he could kill Jesus. Scripture says so he could destroy him. In verse 13, we're told that Joseph is alerted to this plan by an angel in a dream. And he said, take Mary and take Jesus and flee to Egypt so you can avoid Herod. In verse 14, we find out that Joseph was faithful and he did what he was told. There, 20 questions did not follow. Why? I don't really want to do this. I don't know anybody in Egypt. I don't have the money to get to Egypt. None of that. He's faithful and he takes him to Egypt. 
The entire family remains in Egypt until the death of King Herod. And in verse 15, we find this second prophecy as it's fulfilled. He says, all of this happened. They fled to Egypt in order to fulfill what we find in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that says, out of Egypt I call my son. What Matthew's doing is he's making a comparison between the nation of Israel and Jesus Christ. This is what we call topology. And all it is is Matthew simply pointing out that Israel was an early picture of what Jesus was going to be. So a couple of key things are going on here. First, just as God protected the nation of Israel during the exodus in Egypt, remember they were slaves in Egypt, God protected his nation. God is also protecting his son by sending him to Egypt. Just as Moses came out of Egypt to rescue the people from bondage, so too Jesus is going to come out of Egypt to rescue the world from the bondage of sin. So in a sense, what Matthew's saying is Jesus is the second and greater Moses. It's the same picture being played out. He's the true personification of Israel. Remember in Jesus, Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine. He was saying, if you were Jewish, you would understand. He's saying, I am the true Israel. I'm coming to release you from bondage, from the bondage of sin. I found this quote when I was doing some research for this, and it's interesting. It says, in Hosea and Matthew, Yahweh is singing of his love for Israel. He says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. And what Matthew does is he takes this love song to the Messiah, and Yahweh says to Israel, I loved you, and I brought you out of Egypt. Egypt was the place of oppression. It was the place of slavery. And God says, I brought you out. I delivered you out of Egypt. And now the greater deliverer has delivered his people out of a greater bondage. The Jewish people understood the coming of the messianic salvation in light of their exodus experience. They made the connection. We don't necessarily make that connection, but Matthew's calling us back to make that connection. Because Jesus has rescued us from the bondage of sin. That's why he came. The second thing that we have to notice here is the overwhelming, this is what Dale alluded to in the first scripture he read, the overwhelming sovereignty of God. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, was called out of Egypt. And there's a lot more going on here than just topology. If Israel would have been destroyed in Egypt, if God had stayed his hand and Israel would have been destroyed in Egypt, if God didn't rescue the Israelites out of slavery, then the Messianic prophecies would have never been fulfilled. When Israel was delivered from Egypt, so too was the Messiah. What you've got to see here is that all along God's hand was working. It's the idea of, of random chance versus sovereignty. There is no random chance. God's hand is working all the time. Matthew goes on and he shows us this third prophecy of, of weeping and loud lamentation. We find this in, in verses 16 through 18 of Matthew 2. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So 
we're told of a time here where the light bulb came on in King Herod's mind. I've been duped by my wise men. I told him to go find the child. I told him to come back to me. Enough time had passed that they should have been back. No sign of them. They're not coming back. I've been tricked. So there's no information about where is this king. So what we get here is a picture. We get a picture of a paranoid king. He's threatened. And I can, I can, you can see it now. Go back to the, the west wing of Herod. <laughs> he's got all his people around. He's, he's parried, he paranoid, he feels threatened, and it's a moment of rage. He doesn't know where the kid is. I don't know where the king is. I don't have enough information, okay? What do we know? Well, this is when they told us the star showed up. So this is about how old, roughly, that the child is. Well, what do we do? Kill them all. You can see the crazy faces. Is it, what are you talking about? Whoa, 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 whoa. Kill them all. I don't think, I'm the king, kill them all. It's the only way I know that this is taken care of. There's no other way to do it because they didn't come back and tell me where he was. Kill them all. And Matthew tells us that that's exactly what happened. He's going to kill all the males under two in this whole area. That's the only way that he can ensure that this new king is disposed of. Then we see that this action fulfills a prophecy that's found in Jeremiah chapter 31. That says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You can only even try to begin to imagine the level of grief and torment as a result of what Herod did. Matthew's drawn a comparison between what's happening here and what happened back in Jeremiah's day. The nation of Israel was being removed from the land by the Babylonians. They were being taken off into exile. And to many at the time, it would have seemed like this is the end of Israel. There would have been a lot of weeping. And Jeremiah pictures Rachel which is interesting, who dies in childbirth. You can find that in Genesis 35. He's picturing Rachel weeping because she sees the nation that she bore on its way out. It's being destroyed. And what Matthew's doing is he's comparing Herod's murder of these children to the same time of the Babylonian exile. In both, what's going on? The situation seems hopeless. This is the end of Israel. But Matthew makes this comparison for a purpose. And the purpose is to show that there is hope. Because if you go back to Jeremiah 31 and look at the whole context where you find this prophecy, it's this promise that God will turn mourning into joy. He will restore the land at a future point in time. Matthew's making the point that out of death, God will bring life. Regardless of the present calamity and despair, regardless of how bad it looks, God is still pursuing His eternal purpose of redemption. Regardless of the calamity and despair, you can imagine the weeping. Imagine if that was your two-year-old son that was killed. 
Even in the midst of that, God is still pursuing his eternal purpose of redemption. That brings us to the last of Matthew chapter 2 and the fourth prophecy that says he would be called a Nazarene. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And, when he, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So now King Herod's dead. And so the Lord appears to Joseph in another dream and tells him, take, you can take the family back to Israel. Herod's dead. But there's one, only a prob, one problem. Herod's son was now ruling in his place. And Joseph can't take the family there, which he's warned about in another dream. So he ends up taking the family to Nazareth. And this is where Jesus would live and grow up. And according to Matthew, this fulfills the prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is an interesting prophecy because there's no direct reference to Nazareth in the Old Testament. So it doesn't look like these other three prophecies. We can't find a direct reference. So what exactly was Matthew referencing? Well, there's two lines of thinking here, and I think they merge. Okay? Both of them are found in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 4. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So there's this idea that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men, someone of no account from somewhere of no account. But even though this was the case, he was going to be a root, a branch, that would become the Savior and ruler over all. So what's the connection? So at the time, Nazareth is a town of no regard, right? It's a place that was despised. It's associated with Gentiles and pagans. If you remember in John 1.46, Nathaniel even asked his brother Philip, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So one of Matthew's points is that Jesus was to be despised and rejected. And, and Nazareth checks the box because it was a place of, of, that was despised and rejected. And Matthew's second point, and I think this is his main point, was that Jesus was to be the righteous branch. Well, how do we make that connection? We've got to look at Hebrew. So in, in the Hebrew language, this is impressive. I still don't know how they figured this out. But in the Hebrew language, there were no vowels. Okay? So it's only consonants. And words, all Hebrew words have three-letter roots. Okay? And they're all consonants. So today, in, in English or in a, in a transliteration, we would recognize the Hebrew word for branch as netzer, okay? N-E-T-Z-E-R. But in the Hebrew, the root of that word would be N-Z-R, okay? Just those three consonants, N-Z-R. And interestingly, 
NZR would also be the three main letters that would represent the city of Nazareth. So you got the, the Hebrew word of branch, and the root would be the same root as the city of Nazareth. So it, it appears like Matthew is identifying Nazareth with this Old Testament reference to a branch that God would raise up. So this, this was the means that Matthew used to identify Jesus, who was a child returning to a despised town in Galilee and as the king from the line of David who God raised up to restore Israel. So, so what's Matthew... I know that's a lot to digest. That's why you're supposed to go home and study it for yourself. But what's Matthew trying to say through these four prophecies? He presents all four while he's weaving them through the story of Jesus' birth and young life. And he does it for a purpose. Although things seem turned upside down, Matthew makes it clear that the long-awaited Messiah is here and God is still pursuing His eternal purpose of redemption. If we, if we took ourselves, so if you just took yourself and you plopped yourself down in the middle of Matthew chapter 2, historically, it would seem to you like pure chaos and that there was no order at all. No purpose in the way things were, why were they were, it doesn't matter, no rhyme or reason. Random chaos. That's what it would seem like. But, but Matthew's pushing against that. And he's saying, through it all, God is working. And this is where we have to reject, as, as Christians, we have to reject this idea of random chance. And we have to recognize the sovereignty of God. If, if you look at the word chance and you, and you define it, it's defined as the occurrence and a development of events in the absence of any obvious design. I want to say that again. The occurrence and development of events in the absence of any obvious design. So in other words, whether it's positive or negative, chance recognizes things as an accident. That's what chance is. And the birth of Christ couldn't be further from chance. In, in the 50s, there was a professor by the name of Peter Stoner, and he set out to determine what are the mathematical odds of a single person fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah. And we could spend a couple hours just talking about that whole study. But to simplify a complex study, this professor determined that the odds of only eight of the messianic prophecies being fulfilled by a single person was one to the tenth, one times ten to the seventeenth power. So, in other words, one with 17 zeros. That's a big number. Only eight prophecies. If you raise the requirement to 48, so one person has to meet 48 prophecies from the Old Testament, the prophecy goes, to, I mean, the probability, it goes from 1 times 10 to the 157th power. So, one, 157 zeros. And here's the deal there's not eight prophecies. There's not 48 prophecies. There's arguably 300 to 350 prophecies in the Old Testament. So if we waited around for so-called random chance to somehow find the Messiah, we'd still be waiting. 
and we continue to wait for a long time. There is no chance here, only divine sovereignty, a God that's in control, and that is exactly what Matthew is trying to tell us from these four prophecies in Matthew 2. Dale mentioned it this morning. One other thing just to chew on is just look back in Matthew chapter 1 where he rattles off all the genealogies. 42 generations are mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. How many things could have gone wrong through 42 generations, through that span of time that would have changed future generations and led to the Messiah not being born? That was Satan's plan. That was Satan's plan all along. Somehow disrupt the birth line. Disrupt the birth line. That's my only chance. Weasel my way in there and disrupt the birth line. But it didn't happen because God is in complete control. And as believers, we have to recognize this. We have to put aside any mention of chance or luck in our own life. And we have to recognize that God moves in our lives as He's completely sovereign. He's completely in control. Because I want you to hear this this morning. When we refer to chance, we diminish God. And even greater, when we minimize sovereignty, we minimize the love of God. That's one thing that our culture has distorted is this idea of love. God's plan from before the foundations of the earth demonstrates his love for us. It demonstrates his love for you. Think about gifts. So we just experienced Christmas. Just think about gifts. How do you feel when someone goes to great extent to give you a gift or maybe even a gift that took a lot of planning? It demonstrates their love for you. And this, in some ways, is what Matthew's trying to show us. That this plan for the Messiah that God had in place before the foundation of the world, it's a plan that demonstrates God's love for you. If we look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-11, through 11, it says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. Listen to this. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's what John's telling you. He's telling you that you can't define love by human interaction doesn't matter how great the gift was this Christmas. It doesn't matter how romantic your dinner was. It doesn't matter. You fill in the blank. It cannot and will not define love. As believers, we have to recognize that love can only be defined by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. And you have to come to a place where you understand that God takes sin serious. As a culture, we've, we've tried to redefine and reshape this love where love, God is love, and He loves me so much, and I can just go do whatever I want to do. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, all you have to do is look at the cross to know that God takes sin serious. It says, John says here, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. 
so that he could be, so that Jesus could be the wrath bearer for our sin, you cannot separate love and wrath. You can't do it. You can't say God is love and no wrath. You cannot separate love and wrath. Because here's the deal. The greater love that you have, the greater propensity for wrath that you have. Look at him holding his son. If somebody came in and tried to yank him out of his arms, there's a great propensity for wrath there. There's a great propensity for righteous wrath there. So God deals with sin seriously. And the greater love that he has for you, the greatest love of all, leads to the greatest propensity for wrath. And he will deal with sin. But the good news is, that's exactly why he sent this Messiah that Matthew points us to. To deal with that wrath. He loved you so much that he sent his son to deal with that wrath on your behalf, to take your place. The first implication of these four prophecies for our own life has to be that the gift is here. It's here. What are you going to do with it? Have you ever rejected a gift or had one rejected? I look back on a situation when I was a little kid and you look back on on things in your past and you have the ability to fill in the blanks because you didn't have You didn't have the maturity, you didn't have all the information, you didn't have the right perspective at the time. And I look back when I was a kid, this is a silly story, but I look back and think, what a rotten, what a turd. (laughs) But I look back at myself, I remember one Christmas where my parents and my grandparents pitched in to get a gift. It was like one of those big wheels with the battery you can drive around. I was probably eight, I don't remember But I remember, all I remember was I was a kid and I wanted it. That's it. I'm going to become the crime preacher. But I just wanted it, man, and I had a brother. <laughs> My parents worked so hard. But they could only afford one. And me being the kid, man, I just I wanted I wanted one for me. I wanted one for me. I didn't want to share it. I wanted it for me. And my parents, being really good parents, handled that situation way better than I probably would handle it today. But I just look back on that. I remember. You know, I made a little scene and was acting like a punk. And 
But as a grown man, I can look back on that and think, what a dagger. Because my parents and my grandparents, man, they just worked hard. And they did all that planning. Why, why did you buy gifts for your kids for a couple days ago that you knew were going to be broke next week, were going to be not played with two weeks from now, why, why did you do that? You did it because you wanted to see the joy on their face. And I just look back on that and think, yeah, I just, you just crush that joy. So, I'll just tell you that story to ask you, why would you, why would you crush the God of the universe? Who went to a far greater extent, a far greater plan before the foundation of the earth at the expense of his own son, Why? So you could experience joy. Why would you reject that gift? And it's not only the rejection of the gift. Why would you damn yourself by rejecting that gift? See, God wants to bring you peace. He wants to reconcile you to himself. And he wants to use you. But none of that can or will take place until you accept the gift. None of it. So here's the deal. There's some implications from these four prophecies that we're going to get to about when I leave here today, if I have accepted that gift, what is this supposed to do for me? But if you haven't accepted that gift, turn me off. Turn me off. Because right now, you need to wrestle with that. Because what I have to say for the next five minutes doesn't matter until you wrestle with that. So if you've accepted the gift, if God's in complete control, what are these four prophecies, what do they tell us? What do they tell us about God, and what kind of impact should that have on your life? Four things, real quick. Number one, God uses insignificant things. He took an insignificant town, and out of that insignificant town came the Savior of the world. He used an insignificant man, Joseph, an insignificant woman, Mary, and that small town, Bethlehem, to bring about his eternal purpose for the world. So here's the reality. It's that in God's economy, there's nothing that is insignificant, including you. So there's this temptation to feel like you've got little value. 
And that can be a real temptation. But understand that God doesn't see you this way. Because you were valuable enough in, the, in his eyes for Jesus to die on the cross. So that he could have a relationship with you. So that he could use you moving forward. So first, know that God uses insignificant things. And that includes you. The second thing is God acts with an eternal purpose. At the time, fleeing to Egypt and running away from Herod may not have seemed like part of the plan. In, the, in reality, it probably felt like plan B. But with God, there is no plan B. So it doesn't matter how difficult or how out of place things, things seem in your life. God is working with an eternal purpose. And as believers, you, we have to see even the most menial tasks of our day as eternal in purpose. God is moving to grow his kingdom through the very circumstances that you encounter on a day-to-day basis. So the question has to be, do we see our circumstances and the choices surrounding them as having eternal consequences? That's the perspective that we have to see with. Third, we have to understand that God brings forth life from death and despair. It's hard, if not impossible, to put yourself in the position of those that lost a child under Herod's persecution. It must have seemed like the darkest of days with no hope in sight. But both Matthew and Jeremiah point us to the fact that the Lord will turn mourning into joy. He takes darkness and he turns it into light, all while fulfilling his eternal purpose. If you're a believer, if you've accepted the gift, he saved you out of the darkness of sin and rebellion, and he continues to do the same all across the world. So if we trust him in our own salvation, then we have to trust him with all the other aspects of our life. Regardless of how dark it may seem, God will bring forth true and everlasting life from the darkest of situations. And lastly, we have to understand that God's dominion will last forever. Matthew reminds us that Jesus is the righteous branch. He's the rightful heir to the eternal throne, and he will reign forever and ever. What Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to encourage you with that message. The long-awaited Messiah is here, and he will always be here. We look back on this past year. It's been a year that many of you would like to forget, a year that's let us down in, in more than one way. But as believers, we can't let outside circumstances weigh us down because we're called to recognize an eternal kingdom of perfection that's coming that we are rightful heirs to. We're to be set apart as a people, and we're called to live in victory because God's dominion will last forever. So Matthew, he set out to encourage us, and I pray that you've been encouraged this morning. And I pray that we'll, you spend some time this week. You've got a few days left. Spend some time in Matthew 2, looking back at those four prophecies, looking back at the intricacies of God's plan. And allow that to motivate you to live that you might be a part of his plan in 2021. Doesn't matter how insignificant you feel, God desires to use you. And he's working with an eternal purpose in every, every aspect of your life, the good and the bad. He's working to bring true life to you and to others through you. So live each day with an eternal purpose in mind. It doesn't matter how dark it gets, how dark it seems. Remember, we have the ultimate victory. 
because he's our righteous king who will rule forever and ever and ever and ever. We're going to spend a few moments just in prayer. If you're wrestling with that, I haven't, I haven't accepted that gift. Don't reject that gift. If you're, if you're wrestling with that, you want to pray about that, now's the time. We're going to play a song, just give you a moment of reflection, and I'll close this in prayer. Everything back to before the foundations of the earth, you can't even wrap your mind around it. God is working with purpose. so that his name might be glorified. And he wants to include you in that process. Go ahead. Thank you.
gonna turn my mic. There we go. Yeah, don't forget, we've got plenty of food in the back. If you're a visitor, we encourage you to stay in fellowship with us. We'd love to have you join us for lunch. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift, the gift that we can't even fully comprehend that you provided us in, in the birth of Christ and his death, his resurrection on our behalf. Lord, I pray that there are any here this morning that have not accepted that gift, Lord, that you would just stir in their heart that you would force them, force them to wrestle with that before they leave. I ask you to give us boldness as, as a group of believers as we enter this new year. As we don't know what it holds, but we know who holds it. And that you prepared us as a church for whatever lies ahead. Lord, I prepare that we act with boldness. I pray that we act with boldness and, and prepare ourselves just to glorify your name and, and to spread it in this community that's hurting and lost. Lord, I ask you to bless our food and our time of fellowship together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.